0: I am Chris Rawl. It is Thursday, July 8th. On today's show, coaching and how it is a piece of the championship puzzle. Before we get there, we start today's show where we always start it with one reason why gambling should be legal in the state of Utah. Uh, I can be a stubborn person at times. People within my life know that there are certain instances where I just dig my heels in and say, no, this isn't happening. One of those areas can be gambling. Uh, and when the universe is trying to tell me something like, you probably shouldn't be betting on this team, uh, I dig my heels in and I say, we'll see about that. Over the course of the Stanley Cup playoffs, this has been the Montreal Canadiens who have made the Stanley Cup finals, who I've lost every single bet at every single turn. I lost four straight in the Winnipeg Jets series. I lost four straight going into last night's Game 5 against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, and so I'm trying to stem the tides, and I say, you're not going to get the best of me. I'm going to win one of these bets before this season ends. The Montreal Canadiens, they can't screw me over every single game. So last night, I say, I'm not going to bet on Montreal. I'm not going to get bet against Mon- or Montreal. I'm going to bet the total. I'm going to bet over five goals, because I just have to do something to change what's happening here in the universe. So I bet over five goals, uh, and those of you who watched last night's game know it was just a Dragged out defensive affair that ends 1-0. Literally one goal score. The minimum amount allowed in an NHL game for somebody to be declared a winner. That's what happens last night. Good riddance to the Montreal Canadiens and my inability to bet on or against them. Um, And good riddance to this NHL season, which I had many hopes and dreams for my own team that were unfulfilled. Uh, And we have one reason why gambling should be legal in the state of Utah because what you love can set you free. And now, a word from our sponsor, Traeger Grills. With your and you always Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. Coaching matters, uh, but how much? This is one of the great questions uh, that revolve around the world of sports, especially for fans like me, people who don't have a very high-level understanding of coaching and all that goes into it uh, and the X's and O's aspect of getting a football game plan together or running an NBA offense or all these types of things. Uh, We can consume it through the television. I can read about it, all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in the coaching world that, A, I've never been privy to, and B, there's no possible way for me to understand how it impacts a player in a team. Uh, The importance of coaching within this nebulous world that's murky and really hard to sometimes put your finger on It varies depending upon the sport. In football, uh, it's very important. And there are a lot of ways that I personally can understand this as I'm going to get into. Uh, And Within other sports, maybe not so much. Baseball and hockey come to mind where it's limited in how much a coach or a manager can impact an actual game uh, with very rare exceptions on opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, They're just kind of there, you know? Even a coach of my favorite hockey team, a team that I watch every game of, the Colorado Avalanche, Jared Bednar coaches them. I think he's a good coach, but I couldn't really tell you why. It just seems like the team responds to him and he's there on the bench and he's calm. But as far as on ice impact, all that stuff is going to be happening behind closed doors. Uh, Basketball exists somewhere in that middle ground. Sometimes it's easy for me to comprehend what's going on on the court and tie it back to coaching and say, you're not utilizing your players in a manner that I think is probably best. And other times it's harder to understand what they're hammering home in practice, what they're doing on the motivational side to get a player into their very best mindset in order to win. Um, All of this stuff ties together, all the coaching stuff. Uh, It's one of the pieces in the championship puzzle. One that sometimes seems so obvious, and then at other times, I think we just kind of forget about. And we'll talk about just the player or just the team and push coaches to the side. Again, it's this constantly evolving nebulous sphere that is hard to understand a lot of the time and easy to understand a lot of the time. Part of what I like so much about it, uh, the complexity that that goes into talking about and trying to understand this specific aspect of sports. Another one of these razor thin margins between winning and losing within the playoffs. So as I said before, I won't sit here and lie and say that I understand coaching at the very highest level because I, I don't, you know, it's not something that I'm familiar with. In my own personal experience. But on the fan side of things uh, and on the following sports for my entire life side of things, there are a lot of areas that it's easier to understand the impact that a coach can have on a player's career arc or on a team's career arc. Uh, And that's what I want to get into in this show. So let's start in present day and what's going on. Uh, The one major remaining sport left the NBA Finals. Game one was completed two nights ago. Game two is on the docket for tonight. And we have two coaches within that matchup, Suns, Bucks, that kind of, uh, they represent a lot of what I'm talking about. Stuff that's hard to understand and sometimes stuff that's easy to understand. On the harder side, we have Monty Williams of the Suns, who he has had random stops throughout his career. He was with Chris Paul back in the day on the Hornets. And, and I think the opinion of Monty Williams over the last decade was he's just not really a good coach. Uh, and now he's found the Suns team, and he's helped tie it together in some ways that we can understand and other ways that we can't. And he's being celebrated for finding this equilibrium. Um, a team that two seasons ago was last in the Western Conference with 19 wins. Now they're in the NBA Finals. They're three wins away from an NBA title. Um, and Monty Williams is part of that trying to separate how much of this is coaching, how much of it is just this talent accumulation, the, the acquisition of Chris Paul and Jay Crowder and the flourishing now of these younger stars in Booker and Aiton and, and role players in Mikhail Bridges or Cam Johnson, that kind of stuff. That's a lot harder to understand. That's always the question. And a lot of times it's easier to identify that in retrospect. In real time, it's kind of hard. Uh, so on the other side of... The coaching equation in this series is Mike Budenholzer, who I have more opinions about as a coach because I've been able to watch him longer in the spotlight. Uh, Budenholzer, he comes up under Greg Popovich at San Antonio, one of the greatest coaches, if not the greatest coach in the history of the NBA. And he goes to Atlanta. He helps revitalize their franchise. Uh, Most notably, he finishes uh, mid-2010s with... Atlanta winning 60-plus games. Uh, and he just seemed like he was this coach on the rise. Everybody was celebrating him. He goes to Milwaukee. He takes over this team with Giannis, who's now winning MVPs. And they kind of hit a ceiling. You know, they have playoff failure. Then they have another, another playoff failure. Um, and Budenholzer, he he employs a very rigid style of coaching. He's not one of the flexible, uh, let's play to your strengths and do this. He has a clearly defined system, and that's what he asks his players to do. And that style of coaching, it's easier for uh, people like myself to look at and say, I don't know if this is the best way to go about utilizing the specific talent that you have. Rather than shaping your system around the talent, uh, you ask the talent to be shaped around your system. So I think of one star player individually. And this is the main question that always arises with Coach Bud in my mind. And it's just, are you the right coach to truly unlock what Giannis Antetokounmpo is two-time MVP still very young in his career who has some noticeable flaws with his game uh, three-point shooting perimeter shooting but who just is an athletic dynamo who can do so many things that almost nobody in basketball can do ability to get to the rim just ability to score in the paint and this Swiss Army knife on defense there's so many things that Giannis brings to the table and there's this little gap um, that A lot of times can be the difference between winning a championship and losing in the conference semis or the conference finals or the NBA finals where a coach plays a role in truly unlocking what that player can be at the very highest level. So that brings to mind something from the NBA past, um, something that I'm very familiar with as a huge LeBron fan. And it's kind of the career arc that he followed and the coach who was, in my opinion, truly responsible for unlocking present day LeBron. Um, his early career is with Cleveland all the way up until he leaves to Miami. His first two years, he's coached by Paul Silas and Brendan Malone. Then for the remainder of his stint, the remaining years there in Cleveland, it's Mike Brown. Um, and all these coaches followed the same style. It was just let LeBron do what LeBron wants to do. Uh, and for LeBron, it was, I want to run high pick and rolls as the ball handler, and I can try to dissect opponents with my passing. Um, and if they give me shots, I'll take them. And that was fine, and, and uh, Cleveland won a lot of games in the regular season doing that. Within the playoffs, it was less fine because the flaws within LeBron's game at the time, notably his jump shooting and outside shooting, those were accentuated because playoff defenses would say, all right, if we have to pick a poison, that's the poison, and it's actually going to be poison for Cleveland because LeBron shooting a bunch of jumpers in 2007 or 2009, that's a different beast from giving LeBron those same jumpers in present day. Uh, and some of that is coaching. And to be fair to the coaches at the time and to coaches in general, part of that is on the team that's there and the accumulation of, of talent on the roster. Uh, there was not a lot of secondary scoring and creation for Cleveland during those years. You know, I think back and go, yeah, is Mo Williams who you want running this stuff? Is Delonte West? Uh, there's just not a lot of players on that roster that could do almost anything as a secondary creator and scorer, or when LeBron was not playing as the primary one. So we have this high pick and roll game over and over and over. And so LeBron leaves and goes to Miami. Um, and if you remember his first year there, he gets paired with Eric Spolstra, who was just kind of a relative unknown, a former video guy. He was Pat Riley's guy. He wanted him to be the coach. So he was the coach. And 17 games into that season, Miami's nine and eight, They're struggling to blend together is we know they're all talented players, Wade, Bosh, LeBron, but they're just, the on-court fit was very clunky and remained so throughout the entire season uh, in 2011. And so Spolster is the one catching the heat because we know those three players are good at basketball. And at this point we go, well, let's blame the coach. This guy doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to maximize these players' abilities, and he doesn't know how to blend them together into an actual coherent team that can win a championship. So they still make the NBA Finals. If you remember within that uh, NBA Finals against the Mavericks, it was back to this LeBron thing of Dallas's defense did not want him to get into the paint. They did not want him to dissect him with passing. And so they said, all right, we're going to bump you, bump you, and the stuff you're going to get, it's going to be perimeter-based. And LeBron couldn't fully process how to play within that sphere. So in that offseason, we have probably the most important span of LeBron's career. Uh, And why I think coaching can be so important within a player's career arc. Because Eric Spolstra, Pat Riley rides for his guy. He says, we're not firing him. We're not disbanding this roster. We're rolling this back. And I'm trusting that Spolstra knows what he's doing. And he can blend these guys together in a way that can result in a championship. And that's what we see. Uh, And Spolstra tapped into a part of LeBron's game that had not existed up until that point. It was, we need you to perform on the low block. Uh, if you go down there, you are as strong and as fast as anybody. And people can't stop you from getting the ball there and facing up and and either scoring, driving at the rim, getting fouled, or being able to dissect with passing. So the whole offseason and that season, that specific area of LeBron's game starts to expand. Uh, And this is tied into what Miami and Spolster wanted at the time. And it truly unlocks what we've seen LeBron uh, turn into over the last decade now. Just this all-around basketball savant uh, and athlete that can do anything that is required on the court, score from any position, pass from any position, and no matter what a defense tries to put in front of him, he has a way to trump that defense. I'll never forget the NBA Finals that year, 2012 against Oklahoma City, and it was kind of a culmination of this specific chapter within LeBron's uh, story, where... He went on the block time and time again within the NBA finals and how he just obliterated Oklahoma city within that series was passing out of the low post, something that he just didn't have in his game three years earlier. And even the year before he'd struggled doing this, he'd get it there. And if Oklahoma city tried to trap, he's throwing it at the opposite corner, you know, the clinching game, he's just zipping passes all over the court. Mike Miller, three, Mike Miller, three over here, over here. You have another, you have another. And it was, it, it was LeBron and his own talent, but also the coaching side of things and them being able to identify, hey, there's stuff that you have within you that has not been utilized yet, and how do we find that, and how do we tap into it in the best possible manner for you and, in turn, the best possible manner for the team. LeBron, in retrospect, he's likened the whole Miami stint, the four years that he went there, two NBA finals that they won, two NBA finals that they lost. He likened it to uh, going away to college. Um, Just, you think you know everything. For LeBron, that was, yeah, I know how to run an NBA offense and I know how to play basketball. I've won the MVP and all that kind of stuff. But to say something that Chris Sims, uh, my favorite football analyst for NBC Sports, always says, you don't know what you don't know. And for him, that was, I don't know how to perform on the low block. There are certain ways defenses can play that I'm not fully equipped yet, either cerebrally or physically to beat. Uh, And I had to go away to a different coach, to one that really, really unlocked my potential. Uh, And that's part of how LeBron has come to be. This is stuff that I always find to be very interesting because, I mean, you lose track of how many players over the course of time maybe didn't necessarily have that turning point where they were paired with the right coach who was able to unlock what they truly were. Uh, The full realized potential of a player. I think more times than not, you don't see that. You actually see players kind of dwindle away uh, and have a clunky fit, whether that's the situation with their teammates or whether that's on the coaching side. Um, I'm going to shift gears to another sport. Football, one that I think is the easiest sport to identify specific things uh, that have either positive or negative impacts within a player's career arc. I'm going to read a, a big section from an article of Rich Riber of Sharp Football Analysis, and it's about Josh Allen, the quarterback of the Buffalo Bills, and kind of the transformation he's undergone in the first three years of his career, uh, and how that has been really tied into A, his talent, but B, the coaching that has been able to unlock that. People believed in Josh Allen's arm talent and athleticism, but through two NFL seasons, Allen had hardly shown the capability to be even an average passer at the NFL level. Over his first two seasons, Allen had completed just 56.3% of his passes for 6.6 yards per pass attempt and only threw 30 touchdown passes over 27 starts. Last season, Allen made a seismic jump as a passer in his third season, throwing for 4,544 yards and 37 touchdowns. After zero career 300 yard passing games through two seasons, He had 8 in 2020. It is rare for a quarterback that struggled with accuracy and production to start their career. So how did Buffalo propel maxing out their franchise investment? Allen's growth was aided by the addition of Stephon Diggs and increased use of play action, but the largest boon for Allen in 2020 was the Bills pressed the attack with him through the air while avoiding placing Allen in obvious passing situations as much as possible. The Bills and Brian Dable deployed a hyper-aggressive offensive approach throwing the football. Buffalo threw a league high 62% of the time on first-down play calls. 48.8% of Allen's pass attempts came on first downs, the highest rate in the league. On those first-down passes, Allen averaged 8.9 yards per attempt as opposed to 7.0 on all other downs. Just 29.6% of Allen's pass attempts came in bad spots, the second lowest rate in the NFL, end quote. So you can start to see a picture with Allen of coaching putting him in a situation that A, utilizes his talent, but B, it's the best possible position for a passer to succeed in the NFL. Uh, And this ties into a part of coaching that I find to be incredibly fascinating and one that kind of happens over the course of years and sometimes decades. It's this transition in mindset about what is acceptable for uh, our team to be doing. What is just our bread and butter? What are things that we can utilize every single game over and over that will give us an edge when it comes to winning? And a lot of times these things are completely logical once they start happening. uh, But before that, we don't really think about them. It's kind of this strange uh, existence. I think in basketball about three-point shooting, and the way that it's taken over present-day basketball um, in the NBA. And it boils down to a very simple math equation. Uh, Three points is worth more than two points, which anyone can hear and go, well, yeah, you probably should shoot more of those, especially if you can shoot them at a reasonable percentage. It boils down to the simple math that if you shoot 33% from three-point land, that's the exact same as shooting 50% from two-point land. They're all worth one point per possession, uh, something that in the past... If you said, this guy shoots 33% from three, you would say, well, don't shoot. That's bad. We don't want you doing that. But if they shot 50% from two, you would say, do that all the time. 50% from two. That's great. You know, it just didn't compute in most people's minds. And as soon as we started seeing it play out, uh, and especially as the NBA has started to embrace it, it's just been the most logical thing ever. Oh, well, yeah, you guys probably should shoot more threes. It's why now in the last few years, and especially this last season, We've seen the most prolific and efficient offenses in the history of basketball happening right now. I think last year, I want to say at least seven teams set all-time NBA marks for offensive efficiency just last year. That's tied into this. Um, A, everybody has incredible talent. The league has never been more talented. But B, the comprehension on the coaching side of what we want our players to do, it always is evolving. And hopefully improving uh, as we're seeing with NBA offenses, going back to the Josh Allen and Brian Dable pairing, Brian Dable, the offensive coordinator for the Buffalo Bills. This kind of stuff ties into the evolution that football has undergone and the way that offensive play callers, especially within the NFL are really accentuating their quarterback strengths. And if they're not as talented as others, just putting them in positions to at least cover up their weaknesses uh, the stuff that's talked about within that quote from Rich Reiber, There are two aspects of that. Uh, the first one is the non-traditional play calling in football. In the past, first down, that's a rundown. You just ran right into the ground. You get three yards at second and seven. And now you go, okay, we're probably going to pass here. And defenses understood that more times than not, that's how an offense would function. And they could prepare accordingly. And, and the logical side going back into what I was talking about with three points being worth more than two in basketball, the logical side now just goes, well, if we call plays in a manner that maybe the defense doesn't expect, that's probably in our best interest because they expect one thing and they call a defensive scheme according to that. And now we have them off balance because they thought we were running and now we're passing. That's why you've seen this rise in first down passing something that really helped Josh Allen explode in year three. Uh, Brian Dable goes, yeah, we want to pass when the opposing defense thinks we are going to run. And now Josh Allen is averaging 8.9 yards per attempt on those passes compared to, you know, 6.6, two full yards per attempt more over the course of his first two seasons. Um, This is something that the highest level NFL offenses are now embracing more of, and we're seeing the rise in that. Just the simple, logical idea that, we should keep defenses off balance. Uh, We don't want them to know if we are trying to run or pass on a specific down. The other side of that is not the other side, but an additional aspect of this kind of rise in understanding and play calling within football is just being aggressive on fourth down. Um, If you have a fourth and one on the opponent's side of the field, mathematically speaking, it's always in your best interest to go for that. You know, uh, if you get that, that's a turnover in your favor opposed to if you're punting, that counts as a turnover. You've ceded possession of the ball. And more coaches are now embracing that mindset of, hey, if we have the opportunity to hold onto the ball uh, on fourth and inches or fourth and one or fourth and two on in plus territory, we should try with every fiber of our being to hold on to that, you know? And these two things, they're tying into... Uh, it's no mistake that the most prolific offenses in college football and the NFL, and especially on the passing side, they're all happening in present day. Same as the offensive revolution in basketball. Uh, the talent as good as ever within football and offensive coaching, it's always continually uh, shaving off this fat on the sides and saying, how do we best utilize what's on the field and how do we best keep a defense off kilter? Uh, that's the phase that we're currently at. So... We've discussed uh, just this idea of how coaching can impact players and teams within football simply by doing stuff like this. Uh, And one notable example comes to mind for me, another player that I'm very, very familiar with, uh, my favorite football player of all time on my favorite team, Aaron Rodgers, who. In the last few years, I think public sentiment and even within knowledgeable football or even within the football world, knowledgeable people believed that he's on the downslope. His age is catching up with him. His talent is lesser than it once was. Uh, And that's reflected in his statistics. Here we can show you his passing yards per game is down, uh, his completion percentage is dropped, that kind of stuff. Uh, And me, the guy who will always, always, always ride for Aaron Rodgers and who watches every single snap of every single game of his. I would always say, I don't think this is fully fair because in the latter stages of his career, I think that talent or the talent level on his roster really became depleted. And Mike McCarthy as his coach really became stale and did not do anything on that side to put Rodgers in position to succeed in a way that, you know, we've seen with Josh Allen and Brian Dable. So they fired McCarthy two years ago and hire Matt LaFleur. Um, and last season, we see a culmination of a talented play caller with a talented signal caller. And Aaron Rodgers wins the MVP. The Packers go 13-3. and They lose in the NFC title game to Tampa, but they were on the short list of Super Bowl contenders. Statistically, it was as good of a year as we've ever seen from Aaron Rodgers. Uh, and it wasn't like, oh, now he's just completely being uh, carried by play calling. We saw all of the talent from Rodgers that we'd seen in the past. The arm that's just, it, it'll make your jaw drop 10 times a game but we saw it within the structure of an actual offensive system, something that Mike McCarthy had not provided. We saw that within the structure of a play-calling system that utilized a lot of what I was talking about with Dayball and Josh Allen. Um, hey, we're going to be aggressive on fourth down play calls and plus territory until the very most important one uh, of the entire season in the NFC title game, but that's neither here nor there. But like to LaFleur's credit, he's been aggressive on play calls in fourth down Uh, For the two years he's been the Packers coach. We're going to be aggressive play calling on first down. Uh, We're going to be aggressive play calling and and set up play action off of the runs. All these things that put quarterbacks in the best positions to succeed. Um, All the things that prey off the simple logical idea of the defense thinks we're going to do this. And so we are going to do this. Right? It's built upon the Packers having in place a quality run game. Part of that scheme, part of that is having a talented offensive line and Aaron Jones uh, and just a pretty good offensive roster. You pair that with coaching and now you have a lot of weapons to work with and you pair that with one of the most gifted quarterbacks of all time and you have an offense last year that led the league in a lot of categories. Uh, This ties into just stuff that I'm always talking about. Uh, Situation matters, you know, Uh, Rodgers didn't suddenly become good three years after everybody thought he was bad. The situation evolved. He got a different coach. And the pieces of the puzzle, they they clicked into place on both of those areas. And that's why Green Bay had possibly the best offense uh, within Rodgers' career at Green Bay. Um, We've seen the talented pairing of signal callers and quarterbacks and how important that can be. Allen and Dayball, obviously good example. Rodgers and Lafleur last year, very good example. We saw that nearly the entirety of Tom Brady's career with Josh McDaniels in New England, one of the most gifted signal callers there. Very important combination. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, all he's known in the league is Andy Reid, which you couldn't put a quarterback in a better position than that. One of the very best play callers in the league. He's also surrounded with talent. And that's why we've seen Mahomes explode ever since he stepped onto the field as starter. Uh, and this is the best case scenario. This is all the good stuff. And there's a lot of quarterbacks left by the wayside who maybe haven't had that. I've talked about Matt Stafford on this show and maybe we're going to see that now because Matt Stafford has dwindled in obscurity on Detroit with no talent, with no play calling. And now he's on the Rams with Sean McVay, great signal caller in his own right, uh, with roster with talent on that roster. And we're going to see you know how good Matt Stafford can be All this stuff, uh, it's constantly kind of evolving. Um, And sometimes it's easy to place your finger on and say, I think this quarterback is good for these reasons because maybe the talent on offense, it boosts them up and maybe the coaching boosts them up or maybe it's good independent of that. A lot of times it's hard to tell uh, and it's hard to extract which of these things matter the most. This is part of why I think this whole discussion about coaching and player and team is always very interesting because... We can all watch things and sometimes arrive at separate conclusions and really have no way of knowing uh, what's right and what's wrong. That's the gray area. That's the nebulous part of coaching as a piece to the championship puzzle that is fascinating, interesting, and one that uh, shows why I like to talk about this. So athletes and teams, they exist within kind of this all-encompassing sphere. Um, And pieces of it I'm always talking about on the show. The uh, portion is obviously talent. Uh, Tuesday's show was a lot about that. Building a championship team, it requires talent. That's a very logical, uh, easy-to-understand thing. Um, And then there's a bunch of other pieces. And one of those pieces, it's coaching. Uh, And the role that coaches ask each player to fill. That's situation. There's, again, piece after piece after piece after piece. Um, And I think when we get stuck on player narratives or team narratives, it usually happens where... They and they alone shoulder the load of public opinion and sentiment. So Aaron Rodgers, you're now bad. And we don't factor in all these other things I'm talking about. What's the talent on the roster like? His management actually accumulated a real roster that can allow him to succeed. And if they have, have coaches put them in position uh, to maximize Aaron Rodgers' ability? All this stuff, it works together. So for the first decade plus of Rodgers' career, uh, Mike McCarthy's his coach. And essentially the offensive system was... You're talented. Here's the ball. I'll roll it out there. Now go make magic. And Rodgers, because he's an all-world, all-time talent, won a Super Bowl like that and always had the Packers making the playoffs. Um, But that grows stale, and it's really hard to succeed doing that. And it grows harder and harder to do, especially when NFL defenses are studying you on film and starting to understand this team doesn't have a clearly defined scheme uh, that can break down our defensive rules. And so now going in, we can game plan accordingly. And it's really easy for us to understand the only way this team is going to beat us is if that guy pulls a rabbit out of his hat time and time again. And sometimes he can, but more times than not, that's not going to work. That's not sustainable. So the last two years, and especially the last year, uh, we see the importance of coaching because the pairing with LaFleur, it it equates to revitalization. Um, Rogers is now back in an MVP caliber form. Uh, the Packers are their Super Bowl contenders. Hopefully they're back together this year. That's me uh, hoping and praying. We'll see on that front. Um, but but we see everything that I'm talking about within this show come to pass. Um, the talent has always been there for Rodgers. Um, but last year's MVP run, it shows what happens when that coaching piece of the puzzle clicks right into place. Thank you for listening to no baller this podcast can be found on any platform of your choosing if you could rate and review and help spread the word it would help me immensely if you have additional feedback or thoughts that you want incorporated into the show please email me at chris at last but not least if you would prefer to listen to this as a video go to thebeehive.com and find no baller